And today we are very thrilled indeed to have our, one of my long-term friends, very good friend of mine, Chandra M, um, present her research with us today. And Chandra is a doctoral candidate in religious studies in Munich and an anthropology and anthropology in Paris, and has been trained in Geshema curriculum. In her current research, Chandra focuses on how scriptural paradigms translate to lived reality in the context of monastic community in the Galupa order of Tibetan Buddhism. Um, a very fascinating subject indeed, and a very challenging one. Um, but uh, without further ado, and I'm going to share the screen and then please take it away. Good evening to everybody. It's an honor and pleasure to be here. I feel humbled and inspired at the same time. I want to express my particular thanks to Daniel and Jacob for their gracious invitation. And I'm much looking forward to this chance to sh share my research with you. Given that this is a graduate seminar, I'm eager to receive your feedback, thoughts, and impressions. In this sense, my short talk will be less a polished presentation, but rather a look at my research desktop, at the materials, thoughts, and preliminary conclusions we might find on it. Today, we will be beginning with mapping out the field, giving an introduction. We were looking at part one, where we look at the theory of practice. We will then go to part two, the practice of practice, and then conclude with preliminary conclusions. If I may start with this uh, picture, it's an image at the debate ground of Saraja Monastery in South India. And this place is peculiar because in the morning, it has something very gentle, inspirational. And in the evening, when the flood lighting is installed and thousands of monks debate, shout, and wrestle, it feels rather fierce. So it shows, I feel that this place shows particularly well the how, how spaces can be have different faces. Like this very much, and doubt I start out with that. In terms of the background and motivations for this research, I have studied 12 years in the traditional Gishima curriculum, from which the greatest part was dedicated to the Abhisamalankara, and before that, the preliminary topics. I remember a certain amount of perpetual confusion if those studies were supposed to inform a form of Buddhist practice in the practical sense of the word, something embodied, or if it was supposed to be understood as a technical digest, a fancy Buddhist encyclopedia on Buddhist practice in an ideal sense. It was actually our Jacob Fisher here in the audience to remind me that Lama Tsongkhapa made an analogy in that regard, which we can find at the very beginning of the Lamrim Chenmo. After having elaborated on the divisions of the teachings offered by Vasubandhu in his Abhidhamma Kosha, to which we shall return later, the Lamrim reads, for example, it is like showing a horse the race course before you race. Once you have shown it, you then race there. It would be ridiculous to show the horse one race course and then race on another. Similarly, why would we determine one thing by means of study and reflection, and then when you go to practice, practice something completely different. In the same vein, the last of Kamalashila's three stages of meditation says, further, what you meditate on with the wisdom arisen from meditation is just that which you know with the wisdom that has arisen from study and reflection. You do not meditate something else. And this is similar to how you show a horse a racetrack and then race on it. 
So I would like to start with my preliminary research questions and how I started the whole project. And my initial, my initial query was, if the Gishi studies in the same way than our horse with Lamanton Kappa are there to familiarize oneself with the racetrack before then racing on the track, or in other words, a theoretical trial run aimed at familiarization with the theory of practice, um, then what is it? Yeah, what is it all about? If you look in the same way at the Abhisamalankara um, and follow the same logic, are these eight years where the monks studied the Abhisamalankara um, a sociological practice or are there a theoretical acquisition of, um, yeah, of theory how things should be? And so my initial motivation within this research was to inquire if the Abhisamalankara, which is studied over eight years, in the monasteries and nunneries of the Gelug tradition would be the acquiring of theory of practice and with that a causal step or a putting of practice also and what this causal relationship was. Um, in terms of research methods, it was interesting because already when I formulated my research proposal, I was faced with confronting critiques. On the one hand, or the one critique was that I pretended to have a crystal sphere professing other people's level of practice. The other party or the other side said that I was trying to deduce an application from a text while there has been, while there are still communities applying study in the, in the practice of Abhisamala and Kara. And actually I agree with both criticisms, criticisms and hence I opted for a mixed method approach. On the one hand, I have been working with philological methods analyzing, understanding, and contextualizing the scriptural dimension. Um, and on the other hand, I employed qualitative research methods to understand how a text such as the Abhisamalankara is used by the communities within it is embedded. So the theory of practice. So if you want to start with the part which is theoretical and with which I worked with a philological research approach, um, I would like to start with this dichotomy between orthodoxy and autopraxy and um, with canon and charisma as theoretical life motifs. In Tibetan cultures, religious religion and religious traditions continue to play a central role in public life. Religious traditions of various use and vintage have been offering and continue to provide a vital source of personal and collective identity. When looking at the dichotomy of orthodoxy and autopraxy in the Tibetan context, canon and charisma are particularly in the esoteric traditions, a fundamental, fundamental pair. The canon and canonical traditions in themselves can be understood as a stabilizing factor. The canonical traditions guarantee the permanency of a strong religious identity, in particularly in terms of its philosophical, ritualistic, and moral aspects. Periodically though, charismatic teachers bring in a fresh influx of charisma, readjust the canon, the contemporary needs and dispositions are taken into considerations and the, these charismatic figures legitimize new interpretations to their commentary contributions. In other words, the canon characterizes the result of a deliberate attempt to collect, arrange, and preserve the original message of the Indian and Tibetan Buddhist heritage and to protect it against corruption and to define and secure Indian and Tibetan religious identity. 
the canon once fixed is permanent, standing still. In a world going to perpetual change, though. In, on the other side, we have charisma, which is the spark into a routinization of religion and ordinary life, legitimizing religious leadership and change. Great charisma gives, usually in Tibetan tradition, him the legitimization, Latin words are not my speciality, to innovate and to push a new configuration of religious tenets into public acceptance. He brings them into convincing shape and offers innovative ideals, concepts, and models. We certainly can observe the interdependence between charisma and canon, though, and the chain of philosophical and religious legitimation they provide. Looking at the Gelugpa tradition of Tibetan Buddhism, and more particularly at the role of canonical works in that tradition, such as the Perfection of Wisdom Sutra, from which the ornament or the Abhisamanankara derives, or the vast corpus of collected works, such as the Sungbums. Um, in the Gelugpa tradition, that would be the Sungbums of Lama Tsongkhapa, Gelsabji, and Kedubji. Those are considered timeless pillars of the Gelugpa identity and tradition. Perhaps they are, in fact, the most cherished factor of the tradition's survival. So theory versus practice. Um, when I initially started out my research, I attempted to roughly define what theory and practice would mean to me, and particularly in the context of Gelugpa monasticism and within the great centers of their learning today. Theory or study, I understood to be the theoretical engagement with the classic Buddhist text through instruction and dialectical debate as well as the resulting understanding of these teachings, and this forming a basis for practice. Whereas soteriological practice I understood to be an experience-based engagement with the given manuals and instructions. By developing the notion of practice as an analytical category, I plan to inquire into this gap between idealized prescriptions and actual practice, investigate the relationship between study and practice as set out in the Gishe curriculum, and with the respect to the Abhisamalankara in particular, and also examine how contemporary monastic scholars facing secularizing and strongly modernizing realities understand and enact Tsongkhapa's exhortation to engage with the entire body of teachings. So many of you will know what the Abhisamalankara is, where it comes from, but just to refresh your memory, um, the Abhisamalankara is a you know, gives a is a short encyclopedic digest, or um, in other words, a massive condensation of the Prajnaparamita Sutras into only 275 verses or 12 pages. To contextualize the scale of the author Maitreya's synoptical efforts, one has only to recall that the Dergekangyur, for example, has 13,600 pages dedicated to the perfection of wisdom sutras. Generally speaking, the Abhisamalankara is related to the three largest perfection of wisdom sutras. However, judging by the order of its particular topics, it's primarily related to the perfection of wisdom sutras in 25,000 lines. Keeping in mind that Hari Bhadra disagrees here with Vimukti Sena on this, he asserts that the Abhisamalankara relates on the perfection of wisdom sutra on 8,000 verses. The subject matter of the Abhisamalankara is the unmistaken part taught in the perfection of wisdom sutras. 
Those include all paths and realizations of Shravakas, Pratikya Buddhas, Bodhisattvas, and Buddhas alike. In terms of structure, the Abhisamalankara can either be understood in eight categories, 70 topics, or 1,200 subpoints, including all subdivisions. The Abhisamalankara was authored roughly in the third or fourth century, and traditional theological sources attribute Matryanatha, the future Buddha, as the author, whereas um, Western scholarship ascribes authorship to an anonymous author attempting to attract the authority of a Buddha or actual historical figure. As every student of the Abhisamalankara is well aware of, there are 21 commentaries on the Abhisamalankara that were brought from India to Tibet. The Abhisamalankara has the most lasting impact of, impact, impact of any sutra commentary in Tibet. It serves as a gateway for the study of the perfection of wisdom sutras by Tibetan Buddhists of all schools, who have amply added over the centuries to the number of its Indian commentaries. Despite the fact that, that the engagement with Indian commentary in the Gelugpa scholarship is filtered to the Tibetan commentarial corpus and the textbook literature, the main Indian sources referenced next to the Besa Malankara root text, of course, are Arya Vimukti Sena's Abhisamayalankara Viti, or the Nichinangwa. It's in commentaries in 198 folios from the 6th century. And with that, the oldest preserved commentary on the Abhisamayalankara. It was also the first commentary to systematically establish the correlations between certain passages in the Perfection of Wisdom Sutra in 25,000 lines and the 70 points presented in the Abhisamayalankara. Another important um, Indian um, work that is uh, highly regarded in the Tibetan corpus is Haribadra's Aloka, Light in Illuminating the Ornament of Realizations, Exodus in Perfect Wisdom, or in Tibetan in short, Gyanangwa, uh, um, very extensive text in 341 folios, and which relies on the perfection of wisdom in 8,000 line. And then finally, we have Haribadra's Aloka, um, the explanation of the treatise, the verses called the ornament of clear realization, the Devadun Sil, which is a much shorter commentary in 62 folios and based on the much uh, yeah, more extensive um, commentary of, uh, of Haribadra. It does not directly quote the perfection of Wisdom Sutra and also to, due to its brevity, it is the main Indian commentary employed in the monastic education. But back to the Abhisamalankara. It was initially translated in the first diffusion of the doctrine, the Nadar, in the 8th century, but it was really the second diffusion, the Chidar in the 10th century, which really brought about a strong effort in translation of the Indian works about the Abhisamalankara and the first original authors from, from Tibet itself, such as the 11th uh, century prominent translator Rinchen Sangbo or the 11th century scholar Ngok Lozawa, who was the first known Tibetan scholar to author works on the Abhisamalankara itself. The first exegetical activity, however, on the Abhisamalankara was recorded in the 12th and 13th century. More precisely, the Kadampa Monastic College of Sangbo, where initially its scholars Chawajugi Senge and then Bhutan wrote important works. Bhutan's work is particularly famous. Um, it's his massive uh, commentary 
um, years of scriptures has 818 folios and um, his transmission uh, has strongly influenced the Sakya master Yak Dun, uh, just shortly later on, who composed a large and intermediate and short commentary. The Gelugpa commentaries, more in particular, more in particular, start with Lamanson Kappa in his Golden Garden of Eloquence, again, a massive work, 670 folios, which is particularly authoritative in the Gelugpa tradition. Um, but also the commentary works of Tsongkhapa's main disciples, Gyalzab Damarinchen and Kitub Gilix Pelsambo, are crucial in the tradition. Um, later textbooks author that are worth mentioning are the Sevajis and Chuki Gelsen, as well as the first Jamyang Sheba. And um, in particularly for the Bissamalankawa, the textbooks are important because they allow the students to cover topics that are not explicitly covered by the ornament, such as the 20 Sangha or um, the Tangalek Sinningbo by Jezong uh, Hapa. So how is the how is the Abhisamalankara studied in the Gishe studies in the monastery? Um, as we know, the first of the five major treatises studied in the Gishe studies is the Abhisamalankara, which lays a sociological and philosophical foundation for the other texts to come. In the Gishe curriculum, the Abhisamalankara is studied from year four to, to, to year 10. And um, this leads me to my next uh, folio and my order my next slide, which are the lenses and analytical tools. And here I'm really open for input. Um, it's something where I'm still a little bit struggling on. And um, yeah, having laid this foundational introduction here beside my Ankara, um, and I'm aware, as I said, this might have come as a repetition to you, I would like to come back um, to Lamanson Kappa's horse example. And as you remember, the allegory with which he wants to, you know, the allegory was that he wants to explain to us the causal relationship of the theory of realization and the realizations themselves, or rather the theory of practice and practice. And um, in this, if this is the case, where can we situate the Abhisamalankara in this context? What does the monastic virtuoso in a Gelugpa monastery hope for when studying the text for eight years full time? And having looked at the textual dimension first, I have been looking for, you know, as I said, the analytical tools or lenses which might support or contextualize um, the Abhisamalankara's function as a canonical text, its function in the scholastic Gishe curriculum, and also for the single practitioner, him or, him or herself. So um, I came up with certain lenses and analytical aspects that I could think of, but I'm open to yeah any feedback on this. Um, what looked to me possible as tools or lenses that show, show a sequential character of theory of practice and practice would be the three baskets or scripture collections, the denusum versus the three higher trainings. Um, I also have been looking at Vasubandhu's presentations of the Buddhist doctrine as the Dharma of realization, the Dokpichu, and the Dharma of precept, the Lungichu. And then finally, I have also been thinking of the causal relationship that we have in, for example, laid out by Kamala Shila, the sequence of the three acumens of listening, contemplating, and meditating. Um, for the pitakas, for the three baskets, the teaching 
for scripture as well, the arguments of listening and contemplation, it appears sufficiently clear how the Abhisamaya Lankara situates itself in a category of theory of practice. Query is if or perhaps how it leads the of, to the acumen of meditation, the Dharma of realization or the higher training of concentration. To find an answer to this question, I attempted to find manuals, gomtis or dachis, which facilitate the transition from theory to practice. The transition from the argument of listening and contemplating from the scriptural teachings determining a theory of practice to the teaching of realization determining a practice of practice. So if you look at the scholastic treatises um, versus meditation manuals, both scholarly and non-scholarly academic and popular, popular publications seem to agree that literature on the Buddhist path, maga or lam, should be practical. It should be about real practitioners doing real, somewhat controllable practices. In that vein, scholars such as Baswell and Gimello or Clock uh, point out that Ibisamalankara's internal dichotomy between the theoretical elaborations on the path and the lack of relevance they bear to the personal experience of the single practitioner is outstanding. One could even go as far as to say that there seems to be a general perception that Yabisamalankara and his commentary corpus possess hardly any practical relevance. In the monastic education context, the studies of Yabisamalankara are a priori understood as being encyclopedic tracts, with the primary purpose, as we saw in the beginning, to stabilize and sustain a strong religious identity and philosophical lineage. This becomes also apparent when we look at the language employed um, in the commentary corpus of the Abhisamalankara, in the Gelugpa tradition in particular, or the way these commentaries are thought. There are nearly no, to avoid saying no, indications or descriptions of personal experience. First person is not employed, and there are no admissions to people obstacles the, the practitioner might have encountered and the way the author of, it, of a text mastered them. This also holds true for more practice-oriented commentaries, such as Long Lama's collection of terms occurring in the Prajna Paramita, or Gelsabji's way to practice the sequence of clear realizations, to which we will come later on again. Similar claims were um, voiced by Robert Schaaf, as well as George Dreyfus. The real focus in the work on the Ibisamalankara seems to be theoretical. And so the intended trainee or, of the Ibisamalankara has been intramural, a monastic virtuoso who is already fully oriented at obtaining the final sociological aim of enlightenment, living in an environment that is set out to achieve the paths and grounds within the Mahayana framework as set out in the Perfection of Wisdom Sutras, as well as the Ibisamalankara. A lay audience is traditionally foreseen. The text being too telegraphic in its style and only accessible to those who already engaged in a fair amount of studies um, is considered to be beyond the pensum a lay person you know, can employ in terms of time and without neglecting his or her worldly pursuits. So if we look at the texts that actually try to bridge this theory practice divide. I have been working so far with three texts, mainly for first and foremost, 
with the 18th century yogi Long de la Mangawang Losang's collection of terms occurring in the Prashna Parameter. This is a relatively short treatise with the, in 33 folios in the plot print versions and part of an encyclopedic series of 14 writings on canonical texts, tantra, poetry, grammar, medicine, astrology, and astronomy, as well as the religious history. The genre of these texts of Long de la Mangan Losang um, can be attributed to what we know in the Indian literature as Nama Pariyaya, pronunciation of this was wrong, but um, this refers to a genre of quasi-synonymous designations structured by subheadings and comprehensible lists. In Western literatures, a similar designations might be Wolfgang von Söden Listenwissenschaften. While covering all the eight categories and 70 topics, it distinguishes itself from the 70 topics genre. Uh, it offers this particular text offers interwoven pit instructions and at times Long de Lama's very original point of views, indications which are only helpful to those who already studied the text and intended to revise it. Cryptic to those, in fact, who are not familiar with the eight categories and 70 topics already. The second um, text I also worked with is Gerd Abdama Rinchen's The Way to Practice the Sequence of Clear Realizations that Opens the Door to the Supreme Vehicle. The Nyumbatobe Rimbe Nyamsulembe Texto Goji. And Study Larger Text 116 Folios similarly covers the 18, eight categories and 70 topics. And it provides additionally a word commentary on the Abhisamalanakara root text, as well as contemplation and meditation instruction. Noteworthy is that all these instructions, again, reverberate the paradigm in the imperative and therewith have a rather impersonal register. And then finally, I have been also working more for comparative purposes with Gelsabje's explanation, Ornament of the Essence, the Namshining Bogin, and um, this is perhaps the most authoritative commentary used in the Tibetan tradition. And in the monastics curricula, huge text or very extensive text, 346 folios, offering both a commentary on the Abhisamalankara root text as well as a commentary on Hari Badra's Dewadensil. And um, this, this text in particular lays a stronger focus on doctrinal disputes rather than on meditation oriented instructions. As I said, in traditional scholarship, this is the go to text when you study the Abhisamalankara. Our commentary. So I thought um, one of the main interests, intents of my research is to not solely deduce the text application from its content, but rather to understand and analyze how the Abhisamalankara is used by Gelugpa scholars and the great centers of learning and applied in the Grish curriculum in which we find it embedded. So I did an addition classical approach. I did an addition and translation of Long de Lama's text. And um, yeah, as I mentioned earlier, all of the texts um, have something dry, encyclopedic, and to a certain extent, sterile. Um, in the Gelugpa Centers of Learning, the main method to enliven these texts is to the evocative word commentary, the tzikdel. Only for those that have gotten this kind of um, commentary and debated those texts in the dialectical debate format during the daily debate session, these dry texts and the technical vocabulary will become juicy and re reverberate with meaning. 
When the Gishis confers these oral commentaries on the Abhisamalankara, it is like they roll out a map of the Buddhist worldview. They then indicate connections to other texts, to logic that can be employed in the dialectical debates. And these connections and reconnection then exert a transformative force on the mind of the monk in the audience. To retrace this process for my own research, I have received a word commentary on the Long Lama text from the Lama Umze of the Gumitante College, Sarah Laram Geshe Nyawang Sangye, taking daily class, a classical pity in the style a scholar monk would receive classes. However, yeah, he got always uh, rather unhappy when I would start asking pokey questions about context of texts or something too scholarly. He would put me back in my place and say, if you want to be a monk, if you want to play a monk, play a monk, and no side questions, please. Um, yeah, there was not much wiggle room there. So um, come to the second part. If you want to look at the practice of practice, here we have a young monk uh, reading a ritual practice in Gumen Tantric College. Um, yeah, we want to first perhaps look at the qualitative research um, or field research. Um, and the field research I conducted so far in the big study communities of the Gelugpa tradition, and in particularly throughout my last field trip in winter 2022, um, that was a trip where I wanted to understand if and how the textual studies of the Bissamanankara, which are implemented to hermeneutical practices of commentary and debate are prerequisites for practice and meditation. Having already been familiar with the field, I opted for a triple track of qualitative inquiry. I worked with questioners. I know it's very unpopular in the Tibetological fields, but um, still went for it. I had a digital and an analog questionnaire. And these questionnaires um, consisted of eight simple questions from which three are in a multiple choice format. And um, these questions were just an idea to query general meaning and an individual contextualization of the Bissamanankara for the single monk. I was, I was plan, you know, expecting I wouldn't get anything back, but I got back 35 filled out questionnaires at Sarah J and 78 questionnaires at Drepon Lusling. Um, and the Mongomang Monastery, as well as questionnaires from a couple of nunneries. I also, or mainly, worked with interviews. Those are in-depth, semi-structured conversation, usually about 60 to 90 minutes, and hold entirely in Tibetan. If they would like to speak English, we would mix, but um, I didn't work with an interpreter. And I interviewed 25 Gishes in leading positions, key position of education and administration, abbots, reincarnated lamas, and with Gishes that had been in long-term retreats. I also interviewed 18 students in the Gishes studies, ranging from the Bissamalankara class to the final alarm class. And I spoke to 10 Tibetan and Westerners teaching um, Tibetan Buddhist philosophy in a Western context. I would always introduce um, the interviews with a small abstract, kind of introduction, and then try to stick if possible with my question sheet that I memorized. Um, in that way, a subsequent comparison analysis would be easier and more precise. From the outset of the most recent field research, it became evident, though, that speaking Tibetan was not equal to being understood in Tibetan. Um, in particular, though, when it came to less tangential questions, where the language employed in the debate format could not be used. Um, and then en plus, 
that a laywoman would ask nosy questions about philosophical topics, something generally reserved for monastic virtuosi in Tibetan, and then connecting this to something practical was, yeah, apparently rather intimidating for some monks. Um, yeah, so the first part of my question of my question I do in the interview would inquire about Yabisamanankara's placement in the curriculum, methods employed, text and commentaries that would be read on the side, etc. And this part of the interview, um, in fact, is, was rather irrelevant or less relevant to my research, but, um, and I nearly always got the same replies, but it was a vital step to gain the trust of my interlocutors. So I would come in into the room, sometimes they would be clutching their their chairs, you know, in sheer distress, I would ask embarrassing questions. And then when I would come with my classical question, what is the Bissamalankara? How do you study it? Why is debate so important? They would kind of relax and ease in. And then after 10, 15 minutes, it would get bearable for both of us. Um, and yeah, for me, sometimes this was quite embarrassing because you had this kind of famous gishi that everybody respected and he thought, I don't know what they thought sometimes, but you could clearly see that they were very uncomfortable and um, yeah, only about 10, 15 minutes later when they were impressed by the Tibetan or by the way how, you know, they got over their, their fear, things got more comfortable. And then in the second part of the interview, I could inquire, actually, on how the interviewee would bridge listening and contemplating with spiritual practice. Um, in any case, in the first interviews, that those are always pilot project, I had to see how you know, the monks would understand my questions and um, if the question would look logical and straightforward. Um, yeah, and I saw oftentimes that there was really no guarantee they would understand. So the questions were correct, but um, yeah, sometimes not appreciated by my interlocutors. One of those practical challenges I would like to share with you here was, for example, the translation of the word practice. Um, you know, Maybe we would say Nyamlen, we would say Juba, we would say Semla Jarwa, Laglen Cheba. Um, yeah, and it's also interesting how this word practice is very differently connotated by the different schools in Tibetan Buddhism. Um, are, are we referring to practice? Are we referring to contemplative practice? Are we referring to, you know, getting our hands on something, on, on a routinization, on habits, on karmic imprints so this is there's a vast range and um that made it really difficult because for example the word nyamlen is heavily connotated in the tibetan language with something which is very advanced uh, more meditated and, and hermit nearly um same or very similar we had the same problem with gom with um, meditating uh, we have a you know vast traditions of meditating in the tibetan tradition however when tibetan monks hear gom these days they think of western um, contemplative students in the, I don't know, MBSA mindfulness course, uh, courses and um, don't really know how to relate to that. So, um, yeah, right from the start, I observed how using the word nyamlen led my interlocutors more or less instantly to dissociate from themselves as an individually and to switch into some kind of preaching mode, prescriptive style, remembering, you know, me of traditional paradigms rather than of their own personal experiences. Or they would simply make clear that meditation in the mindfulness style, as we know it in the West, um, is really not their cup of tea and they don't engage into that. Oftentimes they would also make reference, yeah, as I said, to Western um, styles of meditation 
um, contemplative practices, mindfulness, and um, yeah, like to dissociate themselves from, from all of that. And in light of this, the task at hand was to find formulations which would not motivate the interviewee to simply deduce from the text, um, from the textual, but um, to find a way to explore um, together his very experiences and to understand how he dealt with the altering interpretations of practices, institutional context, and social frameworks in these times of great change. And then I wrote, um, yeah, I wrote um, field notes. These are um, notes that one writes while doing research, objective notes, one try to be as objective as possible, as descriptive as possible. And I um, also started taking some pictures. Um, I always feel rather silly when I do them, but then when I'm home, I can really zoom in again into a space, into an experience, into yeah, a place where I have been. And um, setting up those interviews was always a big challenge. Um, again, as a lay Western woman interested in philosophy, most geishas were a priori rather suspicious. And then I, sometimes I tried to say, oh, I'm a researcher. Um, and it didn't help at all. Um, because these days, as a researcher, one is supposed to be equipped with microscopes and brain scan equipment. So I was oftentimes asked where my equipment was, which I unfortunately didn't have. I was even contemplating to come with a microscope next time to have some kind of alibi for being a researcher. And it's also interesting that oftentimes the researcher that comes into these monasteries have very minimal knowledge of the Tibetan language, culture, and religion. So for them that somebody comes and already knows, it's, yeah, it's weird. And um, it is therefore that the best way to go to get these interviews for me was to go to an intermediary with substantial power leverage. So in my case, um, that would be Gishin Yawang Sangye, the Lama Umze from Gyume, and former disciplinarian of Sarajin Monastery. And he had so much power that every interview that he set up worked. So you would do a phone call and people would just say yes. If I would have done a phone call, I, I guess nobody would have picked up. And it was interesting because if I had also other people who helped me, like Gishin Lujo, um, Lujo Tapke, the younger director for Modern Studies, at Sebaji Monastery or two philosophy teachers are interviewed or even colleagues and friends. And with the latter, these colleagues and friends, the acceptance rates um, tended to be rather low. Um, and there was, but there was always a fair share of scholars besides with Gishinyang that declined and didn't feel comfortable. Okay, we can skip that. Um, preliminary findings. Um, I just wanted to be made clear with writing preliminary that um, my data is still under evaluation. I'm quite at the beginning with all of that. And my conclusions are, in fact, preliminary. Um, but I find it exciting. So I thought I share what I have with you. And But I want to warn that this might all change in a couple of months. So the question, so I would like to start with this. The question to what and why it is essential to the studies, um, to study Abhisamanankara is currently being revisited. The question asked in particular with regard to Bismillankara are the studies of, you know, are if these studies are relevant and how to what they're actually relevant. So are they relevant to get a Gishi degree? Um, are they relevant um, in preparation to become a good practitioner? Are they relevant to get a degree at India at an Indian university? 
are they relevant to contemporary application? Are they relevant to remain to a monastery? These questions somehow were everywhere, and yet at the same time, not too pressing. And um, it was interesting that I could see that being culturally endowed with faith into the Buddhist path, the monastic scholar traditionally had less a need to control this process of relevancy of the studies. Um, they had a strong belief into a long-term into long into the power of a long-term process of karmic imprints. What was so interesting was to see that the younger generation had other point of views. Um, for them, it, it appears rather challenging to invest eight years of their life or 25 years if one sees the whole Gishu curriculum um, to only have a return of all of that in the next life or in three countless eons. Um, what is also very interesting is the adapted teaching styles. So if one speaks to older teachers or students of older teachers, so I had a conversation with Kirimuchi Tashitsidar from Sarah J Monastery or students of Geshe Zambagyatso or Chudin Mimichi, they were saying that in the past, the teaching style was completely different. One had classes every day and those classes had two parts. The first part was philosophical, intellectual input, philosophical input. And the second part would be um, a connection to something practical, to a practical aspect of practice. And there would be either teachings on the Lamrim or the three main aspects of the path and principal aspects of the path or the foundation of all good qualities. So they would do this bridge of theory of practice and practice of practice within one class. Classes would be long, two-parted, and this is something um, we don't have at all anymore. Um, also, the, the language would be different. Um, the philosophy te philosophical teachings in these two-parted uh, classes would be much more yeah, like a teaching rather than a philosophy class. Okay. Oh, yeah. Um, and with regard to contemplative meditation um, or meditation, it was so much um, in decline in the monasteries after they came out of Tibet that meditation as a practice itself was recently reintroduced in Serame by the abbot um, Nyawang Jordan several years back and by Gishtashi Tsering, the current abbot, um, very recently. Um, same for Sevaji, Gishin Yawang Sangi introduced a couple of minutes of silent meditation just after the mantra recitation during the recital of the Heart Sutra in the context of the Chura prayers in the evening. Um, it's also interesting to see that all of these abbots had introduced contemplative practice, even if a couple of minutes into the monks' day, had been long time in the West or had a strong exchange with Western cultures and um, had a sense or a need for meditation in a more modern sense. Um, interesting to see that this is somehow a retrospective adaptation inspired by the West, um, and perhaps more that than an intrinsic wish of the monks themselves to practice silent meditation. Um, and well, yes, one could say that the, the focus today is really on study and debate and exam relevancy, for example, um, is something that is becoming more and more strong exam and degree relevancies, for example, exams uh, results are now shared online um, on Excel charts and, you know, this kind of where am I, what are, you know, it, yeah, where am I with my ma with my grades um, are really forming uh, the, the identity of the monks in a, in a quite strong form. It, it seems that this, yeah, exam and degree orientedness really changed in the last couple of years. Without further ado, um... Yes, uh, to come to some conclusions, again, preliminary conclusions. Um, 
my preliminary findings show that sweeping statements that we all like, such as Gelugba monks listen and contemplate, but they do not meditate, or the study of the Abhisamalankara is purely scholastic or theoretically, or um, the to acquire a solely encyclopedic, you know, um, to acquire to acquire a solely encyclopedic function is the main aim of the Abhisamalankara. Or, every, you know, or on the other hand, everything in the Abhisamalankara is part of practice. Are in fact true generalized statements and come from the use of an analytical lens which does not allow a differentiated analysis of scriptural and lived realities in which the studies of this text are embedded within. In particular, the communities in Indian exile, which are increasingly dealing with the influence and the toll, modern media, social media, secular education, um, and modern lifestyle takes on their life, um, yeah, are designed for a different outlook. So exoteric curricula in esoteric institutions or traditions. Um, this was one, one of my findings at the very end, the finding, but uh, yeah, an important point that, that really came out of my research that the Gelugpa tradition of Tibetan Buddhism as represented in the great monastic seeds is mainly a, tan a tantric and uh, mainly tantric traditions um, in terms of the institutional infrastructure and their final practice aims. And but if you speak to monks themselves, they represent themselves as predominant, you know, they represent themselves in the institution as predominantly sutric institution. Even if one can clearly see that on a personal level, they identify or their identity brings together sutra studies and tantric practice. So yeah, this is something that I want to further look at, but I found very interesting. The second point was no priority to formal practices, theoretical focus, practice and theory in the theory of practice. So the Abhisamalankara related to that, um, yeah, it's mainly seen as a, as a text to study, um, accumulation of merit, talk, debate, ritual in the consens, um, it's, yeah, it's seen as part of a theoretical training. And um, even if no contemplative practices that monks practice directly deriving from the Abhisamalankara itself, there's great value attributed to the study of this text. From an institutional perspective, the study of the canonical sources has much to do with the sense of preserving, preserving of intellectual heritage, upholding a distinct heritage and canonical traditions quite unique to Tibetan culture. On a more personal level, um, it lays a blueprint. It's like a folder the other, that other texts are inserted in. So the monk studies Abhisamalankara and then inserts into his Abhisamalankara folder the Madhyamika that supplements the view, the Vinaya that supplements the ethical training, the Abhidharma that sets the basis of analysis, and then finally Pramanavatika that provides the logic um, to reflect the meanings. And um, yeah, so Abhisamalankara is seen as a folder that um, really excellently prepares for tantric practice. And then the main aim, familiarization with the preliminaries as in a, for Tantra. And here, the arguments for hearing and contemplating in the Sutra tradition provide the necessary preparation for Tantra. So this is one of the main aims that is seen in these long studies. In other words, the Abhisamalankara prepares and strengthens the three prerequisites for Tantra, 
which are, as we all know, renunciation from samsara, this existence, um, this life, then bodhicitta and emptiness. And um, those topics are extensively taught in the first chapter. And to conclude, um, to come back one second to our horse, um, where we said, you know, we shouldn't show a horse around one rice track and then race somewhere later. One has to wonder if it's perhaps the case that the acumen of listening and contemplating are situated in the sutra vehicle, whereas the um, acumen of meditating, you know, what we understand as um, contemplative practices is allocated in the Tantra series and there is no contradiction for a Tibetan mind. Texts that address contemplative practices, meditations and trainings in concentration are mainly sourced from the tantric vehicles. The texts about practices, meditations um, and training in, in concentration that are sourced from the sutra vehicles have a mainly theoretical or cannot, you know, preservation application. They're not applied themselves, but they are studied to preserve um, a heritage, a canonical tradition. Um, and for example, we have the study of the concentration and fullness absorption for a whole year in the Bissamalankara, but nobody ever would practice that. And it's made quite clear in the, in, the, in the classes, throughout the classes. And this also explains why the texts that I was looking at by Longdu Lama and Gyalzabji are not really interested, interesting to the monks. Um, they're not seen as a bridge between the training of listening and contemplating. Um, in the sutra vehicle and meditation in the tantra vehicle. And um, it's, yeah, but we have to remember that it's interesting as well that this bridge is also not done in class anymore, something that happened in the past. So, um, but got lost at a certain extent. And um, one has to wonder how this bridge is to be rebuilt. The, um, the monastic communities are trying, they're reorganized now regular teachings in the Lamrim within their in the daily churas, but yeah, this is, remains a question. So if the texts that are supposed to give this bridge are not used, it's not done in class, where is it done? So to repeat the conclusions and let you go, um, the Abhishamalankara has indeed a theoretical focus. It, um, it is really, really important for the preservation of a canonical and scholastic tradition for the preparation of tantric practices. Um, for meditation and practice in Tantra. And um, this is also the main reason why sutric practice texts are not so much considered. And um, yeah, I wonder, looking back at our horse, if the acumen of hearing and contemplating are mainly to be situated in a sutra vehicle and preparations to then um, a training of concentration and meditation directly in Tantra, um, and that being then the the result of all that and um, the connection of those two is done with the lam rim or shorter text um, that we advocated before and um, yeah the, another point we made in conclusion was that the great Gelugpa centers of learning um, predominantly represent a sutric institution and on the individual level we there identify as bringing together sutric and tantric elements in any case I want to thank you for your attention. I hope um, there were not too many mistakes and uh, yeah, my reading was not too bumpy and um, I look forward to your feedback and to any thoughts or inputs you might have.
And yeah, don't hesitate to speak to me or to write me. I'm looking forward to that.